0: The scripture for this morning's sermon comes from Psalm 129, verses 1 through 8. They've kicked me around ever since I was young. This is how Israel tells it. They've kicked me around ever since I was young, but they could never keep me down. Their plowmen plowed long furrows up and down my back, but God wouldn't put up with it. He sticks with us. Then God ripped the harnesses of the evil plowmen to shreds. Oh, let all those who hate Zion grovel in humiliation. Let them be like grass in shallow ground that withers before the harvest. Before the farmhands can gather it in, the, harvester, the harvesters get in the crop. Before the neighbors have a chance to call out, congratulations on your wonderful crop. We bless you in God's name. This is the word of the Lord. Buddy, round of applause for Rebecca and our reading. She was so nervous, so nervous. Well, my name is Aaron. For those of you who do not know, I am on staff here. I, I work with the students and the, who are the most awesome people in the church. Right? No? Okay. I guess they're not that excited to be here. That's cool, though. I think you guys are great. Um, one thing you'll learn about me is, is, if you have not yet, I've only been here for a handful of months, uh, is that I, I love to run. I, I thoroughly enjoy Running and this November, actually, I will be running my second marathon. I enjoyed the pain of the first one so much that I decided to do a second one. Now, if you've ever, every time I kind of like talk to people about the fact that I enjoy running, I usually get one of two responses. Either, the the one response that I often get, I'm like, yeah, I I run, you know, I want to do marathons, da-da-da. The first response I often get is this gasp of like, and then like this sort of like, sort of intimidated like admiration for what it is I do. Like, wow, that's so cool. That's, you know, like that's awesome that you can do that. I can never do that. That's so great. But the other response that I often get is people who think that running is the most insane thing that you could do in your life. Like, why would you run? Like, I don't understand. Like, what's the point? You're literally just moving from this point to this point, and you could do it much faster in a car. Like, I don't get why you're running. Like, technology is awesome. Enjoy it. But regardless of either of those responses, usually the people that I talk to, they, they have this idea in their minds that I enjoy running. Which is kind of, I mean, I guess since I do it so much and I run so many miles, many people think that all runners enjoy running, but the reality is not all runners always enjoy running. You see, I, I ran cross country and track in high school, you know, and, and people thought that was odd, and they still think it's odd to this day, but in high school and in junior high, students and teenagers, they think that they're like so clever, right? And so they would, they would sort of like mockingly describe our sport as those people who like to run for fun. Um, like they thought it was brilliant because like run rhymes with fun. You see what they did? Like they, they rhymed them and they kind of made fun of us. Uh, but, but there's this misconception that they had of runners in that we actually enjoy running all of the time. Now, there are definitely days in which I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking, let's put on the shoes, let's go do 10 miles, this is going to be awesome. Like there, there are nights where I come home from work and, or from the church, and not that those aren't the same, but I come home from the church or work and, and, and I just think to myself, like, it sounds so appealing to just go exert my body physically in the act of running, but the reality is more often than not, perhaps, or equally as much, is running is actually something that I don't enjoy, believe it or not. There have been times, more often than once, where I have stretched for like 25, 30, 35 minutes. Not because I wanted a good stretch, but because I was delaying the inevitable first stride. Because I just did not want to run. Like there are days I wake up and I know I have to do this training run and everything in my body is telling me, don't do it. Just sit on the sofa. It's so much nicer. Turn on the Dodger game. You won't have pain. And everything is like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And yet the reality is, is that if <laughs> if I want the prize of uh, of completing or finishing my race. If, if I want the pride of achieving that certain time, it, it is my habit to run needs to persevere through all of those thoughts and ideas. You see, running has caused me to lose toenails. It has given me countless numbers of blisters. It gave me tendonitis and shin splints when I was in high school and most recently. It has given me plantar fasciitis in my right foot, which makes having a foot just like irritating, let alone like running and walking on one. And I'm not a quitter by nature, but running makes me sometimes want to quit, is that running actually isn't always fun. It isn't always easy. Sometimes it's just downright difficult, and honestly, it often demands more of me than I want to give, but the prize demands perseverance. Our psalm this morning reveals an uncomfortable truth about the life of Christian faith. Namely, that it does not eliminate struggle in this life. Faith does not eradicate suffering for God's people. In fact, faith may not even shorten the timetable of hardship in this life. To put it plainly, faith, like running, is not always fun. The psalmist writes, They've kicked me down ever since I was young. This is how Israel tells it. They've kicked me down ever since I was young, but they never could keep me down. This declaration of the psalmist implicitly brings to mind the wearying history of Israel. Even the briefest descriptions of Israel's history cannot avoid or ignore the painful realities that paint it. They were a small people, and an even smaller nation that endured the sufferings of slavery, the barrenness of the wilderness, and the agonies of being a conquered people. They know what it means. They knew what it means to be kicked down, and on more than one occasion. These may indeed be surprising conditions for God's people, the people that God chose to be His own. God's people shouldn't endure that, and yet Israel finds themselves in this position over and over and over again. But these circumstances, these situations, cannot overcome or hinder the persevering faith of God's people. They continue to press on in the midst of difficulty and struggle. There may be no better example uh, of what it ha- what of what happens in the face of such anguish for the people of Israel uh, than the suffering servant in Isaiah the servant is described as being have uh, blah, blah, blah. the servant is described as having been quote this is from Isaiah 53 despised and rejected a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief who was looked down on and passed over A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. This is a story of Israel. This is who they are embodied in this servant. Eugene Peterson describes a picture of this man as one of extreme rejection and painful persecution. One would expect very little to come from such a life. Yet Isaiah goes on to tell us that this suffering servant of Israel will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, God's righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. This is the story of Israel embodied into a single person. They've been kicked down. They've been kicked down since they were young and yet nothing is ever able to keep them down permanently. It's the same story that we see over and over and over in the Old Testament is that God's people and their faith outlast that which tries to persecute or oppress them. It's a story that we see in the book of Ruth where abject poverty does not crush this powerless widow but faith overcomes it. It's a story we see in David and Goliath where Israel's persecutors who seemingly have the upper hand on God's people are pushed back and destroyed by a teenage boy and his faith. It's a story we see in the book of Esther where the almost certain oppression of God's people is restrained by the faith of a queen. It's a story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego where these three boys who refuse to worship a God other than the one true God decide they would rather die than than worship another God. And their faith, their persevering faith, saves them in the wake of danger. There's many more stories. You're probably like, hey, stop sharing them with us. But the persevering faith of, of God's people is showed resilient over And over and over and over again. It can never be kept down permanently. It perseveres always. Jesus picks up on the same theme in his life. This is the story of Christ, right? Although sometimes we think of the life of Christ as being full of these miraculous stories and large crowds that are kind of enthralled and love his teaching, we can't ignore the fact That from, we were actually studying the book of Mark in our Sunday school class. From Mark chapter 3, the beginning of Mark, that's like the third chapter of the book. People are already plotting to try and kill Jesus. Like he's literally been ministering for like a month. And it's like, boom, let's go after that guy. This is Jesus' life. And on more than one occasion, people, large crowds, have decided in their minds that they're going to throw Jesus off of a cliff because they don't like what he's teaching. And although we often think of Jesus' suffering and his pain and his distress as kind of culminating in the cross, we we would be amiss to skip the fact that Jesus suffered in this life also. But certainly there is no greater anguish in the world ...ever experienced by any person in that... ...which Jesus endured the night in the garden... ...before he was to be crucified. It's probably the... ...I think it's the only time in the gospel... ...where Jesus asked the Father... ...like, just don't... ...don't make me do this. I I don't want to do this. Yet we know the other side of that event. Jesus' faith in the Father's will for his life... ...is vindicated in his resurrection... But this story is also seen even moving on past Jesus and into the early church. Right? You just read the book of Acts and you read all the rest of the New Testament and you discover like like Peter went to jail. Peter was imprisoned. In fact, Peter was crucified also for his faith. But upside down. Ten of the eleven remaining disciples, original disciples of Jesus' ministry, they are martyred as a way of leaving this life. Paul shares stories in his letters of shipwreck, hunger, poverty, beatings, death threats. But here's the thing. In the midst of all of this oppression and persecution in the early church, what God does when his people remain faithful is is allow his kingdom to flourish. You see, as the early church is being persecuted, and they were were just kind of hanging out in Jerusalem, right? When Jesus says, like, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Yeah, They're just hanging out in Jerusalem. They're like, I like hanging out in Jerusalem, man. This is like, this is a place to be at. This is a pilgrimage, right? Like, we're making the pilgrimage. Sh- yeah, anyways. So they're hanging out in Jerusalem. The persecution comes. And, and, and they, do, they don't flinch. They don't waver exactly. But in, in the midst or facing these sort of threats, they begin to flee Jerusalem to try and try and save their lives, right? Like, that's what I would have done. I would not have stood there and be like, no. I would have been like, See ya. Like, I'm going to go, right? And so this is what the apostles and the early disciples do. But as they're fleeing, what God begins to do for these people who are faithful to him, who are persevering in the faith, is now they're relocating to new cities. They're proclaiming the gospel to new people. And the gospel begins to spread in the face of persecution. Struggle and suffering cannot keep God's people down. This is the lineage of faith that we enter into as God's people. This is the type of faith we are called to maintain in our own lives. One that perseveres in the midst of struggle. The suggestion or thought (laughs) that we are to have the faith of these biblical heavyweights may sound intimidating and to some impossible. But before we begin to elevate these these faithful people into an unattainable class of faith, we we would do well to remember that the psalmist clearly notes why such perseverance is possible. He writes, God wouldn't put up with it. He sticks with us. God ripped the harnesses of the evil plowman to shreds. God won't put up with it. He sticks with us. The promise that God is a God who is with his people provides them the hope and security to know that their sufferings and their struggles are temporary. God has established a relationship with his people, with us, and he's not going to abandon it. See, what we often misunderstand about our relationship with God or more specifically God's relationship to us is that we think his relationship to us imitates and reflects our relationship to him. But the good news is that it doesn't. God isn't temperamental. God isn't fickle. God isn't distant ever. His commitment to us and the way he relates to us is personal, unalterable, and enduring, especially in our struggles and sufferings. Our God is a God who sticks with us. Just prior to this hope-filled declaration, the psalmist offers a graphic image of what it looks like to suffer and struggle at the hand of another person. It's an agricultural image, so those of you guys who like gardening or farming, Jeremy, I'm thinking of you, will seriously appreciate this perhaps or understand it. It's a picture of a farmer making furrows uh, in a field. Now, I didn't know. I grew up in the city in, like, Long Beach. I didn't know what a furrow was. So I had to look that up. How many of you guys know what a furrow is? Oh, dang it, I'm an idiot. Okay, most of you guys know. I didn't know. Okay. A furrow, for those of you who didn't raise your hand and you can connect and relate with me, a furrow is like, (laughs) you know, like, when you're a little kid and you're driving down the highway past, like like, a field that's being farmed? And, like, you notice, like, all the lines. Did you guys ever do that? And you stare, and they kind of, like, move fast. Anyways, a furrow is, like, that trench or that thing that's being dug straight down a field. And so what farmers would do before there were tractors and all this, like, modern technology is that they would grab a couple of oxen, and they would yoke them together. Like, they would connect them, like, by the neck with this piece of wood. And... They would literally walk their oxen in straight lines down a field to try and maximize their field for what they can plant and then harvest from it. And so the picture that we get in Psalm 129 of what it looks like to suffer is the picture of a farmer walking his oxen down a field with this big, and I guess it had like a, some sort of metal sharp thing that would kind of dig into the ground right and the picture that we get of suffering in psalm 129 is that that tool that instrument i don't know is called being drug a plow sorry <laughs> it's in the psalm it says plowman that's so embarrassing i'm gonna ask fuller to get my money back that is terrible i even lived in ohio for four years I'm from the city, man. I don't, do, I don't do this farming business. I only know vegetables from the grocery store. So, but, but in all seriousness, the picture of suffering that the psalmist gets that Israel endured is one of a plow being dragged across Israel's back. It's super violent, like when you think about a plow digging into a human being. But this is the crazy thing that God does. It's that like God rips the harnesses of the plowman to shreds. He destroys it. The straps that once connected the, the plowman to the oxen so that he can guide and direct the suffering of people, God enters into that situation and he rips the harnesses to shreds. The instrument that was once used to harm and hurt is wrecked And rendered useless, and the pain and suffering of God's people is lifted. This is why God's people are able to persevere. Do you know this sort of struggle and pain? Do you know what it's like to be kicked down? Do you know what it's like to feel that sort of agonizing pain the psalmist describes? Perhaps the stories of slavery and wilderness, crucifixion and persecution have made this sort of struggle and suffering seem foreign to us. Certainly I haven't endured any of those. But one of the beautiful things about the Psalms, if you read through the book, is that the Psalms are written from a perspective that's, that's very vague. Like in our psalm, the psalmist doesn't write specifically, oh, and we were in Egypt and we were enslaved, but then God set us free. It's just a very general, they've been kicking us down since we were young. And the reason why, and this, is, this is like, oh, God is so good, is so cool, because God has given us a book that we can personally insert our stories into, where we don't have to read the Psalms and say, you know what, that's just very distant experience that I know nothing about. But God has given us this prayer book where we can pray these prayers in our own experiences, and in our own life. Is that the Psalms intentionally keep out these details for all of God's people in all times and all places to use them personally. So I ask you again, what is that struggle or pain that you connect with in the Psalm? Do you know what it's like to be kicked down? Do you know what it's like to feel that sort of agonizing pain the psalmist describes? An unexpected divorce. An abusive relationship. An absent parent. An extraordinarily cruel co-worker or boss. God's people have long histories of bumps and bruises, of deep wounds, of unimaginable hurt, of deep anguish. And this, too, is our lineage of faith. The life of faith is often lived in the midst of these tensions of joy and pain. This is what it means to, when you're baptized, that, that we enter into both the death and life of Christ. Both of those, see, we often think in the church that through baptism we have been crucified with Christ or we, we've, been, we've died with Christ and then the rest of our lives we live in this great life of Christ. But the reality is when you read the New Testament, when you read Paul, is that Paul talks about us as God's people carrying around both the death and life of Christ in this life now, even after baptism. And this is what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4 when he wrote, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. God's people stand in this tension both of sorrow and pain and joy and hope. The natural response any person has to such hurt in this life is recorded in the psalm. The second half, the psalm is kind of broken into two parts. You have verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 8, which is really interesting. But the second half of the psalm records. The psalmist's cursing of those who have caused him pain, or her pain. The cursing is clearly filled with indignation and fury and personal vindictiveness. In it we see the natural result of injuring another human person. It's anguish. He writes, Oh, let all those who hate Zion gravel in humiliation... Let them be like grass in shallow ground that withers before the harvest, before the farmhands can gather it in, the harvesters get in the crop, before the neighbors have a chance to call out, Congratulations on your wonderful crop. We bless you in God's name. See, what the psalmist does in this second half is he's thinking of all of these memories. He's thinking of his history and all he can do. He can do nothing but wish bad things on those people who caused him suffering and pain in this life. This is like one of those cool things, too, in Scripture where we realize that the people who wrote this were human. They, they weren't like these like super Jesus people that just felt good all the time and were super faithful and never uh, made mistakes and always felt good butterfly things. No, the people who wrote Scripture are people who resent other people. They get angry. They get super mad. They don't think that it's okay what happened to them. And although it is refreshing sometimes to recognize and see th- that Scripture is filled with sort of genuine real-life response, something this guy up here, two thumbs pointing at this guy can connect with, we can't excuse the extent of its anger. It's not godly, even though it's in the Bible. Um, weird tension. Proverbs 24:17, "Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Matthew 22, 39, love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 5, 44, the words of Christ, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 18, Peter saying to Jesus, do I forgive seven times? Jesus responding back to Peter, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. It's clear in Scripture that what the psalmist is expressing here at the end of the psalm, the sort of resentment that he has for the person who caused him pain, is not godly, it's not righteous, it's not what God calls his people to. And you'll notice if you read the entire book of Psalms that there are many psalms that are filled with this sort of resentment in them, uh, with these attitudes that desire and wish bad things for one's enemy. But rather than disparage the writer for their emotions and feelings, we should identify in them something that is deeply Christian, and that is uh, the psalmist's passion and sense of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis wrote, The absence of anger, especially that sort of anger which we call indignation, can, in my opinion, be a most alarming symptom. For if we look at their railings, we find they are usually angry, not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong, are hateful to God as well as to the victim. Let me read that last part again. For if we look at these railings, if we look at these cursings, we find they're usually angry not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong, are hateful to God as well as to the victim. See, what C.S. Lewis noted is he sees in this attitude this sort of redemptive worth of those feelings. And it's that the person in the psalm desires and has a passion for what is good and godly in this world. Is the reality is God has created us to relate to one another. He's created creation to function within a specific way. And when those sorts of principles or rules that are supposed to govern creation are broken, we should feel anger. We should feel upset. But we need to harness those things into something that is more godly. And so the psalmist, although sort of wrong in his feelings of vindictiveness, clearly senses that there are wrongs in the world that need to be righted. And this sort of passion for justice and orderliness in the world should move God's people to want to act and change that which is wrong and broken in the world. This is why we have doctors, this is why we have lawyers. This is why we have people who start orphanages and feed the hungry. This is why we do those things, because we're passionate and furious that there is this brokenness in the world that isn't the way God intended things to be. A few weeks ago, we went to District Assembly. Or a couple weeks ago, I don't know. We went to District Assembly, and it was really good. I heard... I walked away from district assembly. I'd never been to a district assembly before. Where like I was pumped, like I was just like stoked about what was said, because there's these guys who came. One of our generals, Doctor David Graves, and Simone Pierre, who's a district superintendent in um, Rwanda. Thank you. They came and then they brought God's word, but they like brought it hard. Like like they were they were on fire. Like the Holy Spirit was like boom, 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 boom. Like it was just it was too much. It was like overwhelming. Um, Simone Pierre, though, most of you guys have, uh, know who he is, uh, he, he's, uh, he has this crazy testimony. And um, to give you a little bit of background, he is a district superintendent and pastor in the country of Rwanda that, that experienced uh, mass genocide in 1994, uh, where I think that he said there was like a million people that were killed in 100 days in their country because of tribal warfare, which is really nuts. And when he became a Nazarene in 1984, there were zero churches of our denomination in his country. And today, there's like well over 100 Nazarene churches in his country. And he's been like the cornerstone of God's work in that place, which is so cool. But at District Super, I mean at uh, the District Assembly, he shared this story that was just incredibly uh, moving and powerful to me. He told a story about this boy. And if you're here at VBS, you heard it. He told a story about a little boy named Peter, right? That was his name. Eric? I'm blowing it. Eric, sorry. I was going biblical. <laughs> he shared this story about this little boy named um, Eric. And the story is, after the genocide, there's like 840,000 orphans because of the genocide in Rwanda. And so, the Church of the Nazarene does a lot of work with kids uh, in trying to change that generation so that they can change their country. And so, they do a lot of work with kids, and Simone Pierre, he he met this boy, Eric. And Eric's parents had had both been killed, I believe, from, from the AIDS epidemic, or from the genocide. And Eric lived alone. And, his, his family had a house but somewhere in the wake of him being a kid the house was like it got half destroyed and and so there's kind of like there's there's like two walls right and it's just like open to everything else that's kind of uh, around him and and this little boy Eric invited Simone Pierre to come to his house like Simone Pierre was kind of like like hey like you should come to church and Eric was like no you need to come to my house like and Simone Pierre's like, you're nine. Like, you don't have a house. And he's like, I do have a house, and we're going to go check it out. And so they go to the house, and Simone Pierre's like, wow, this is this nine-year-old boy living by himself in a half-tattered house. Like, I should do something for this kid. And so he asks, he says, Eric, what can I, what can I do for you? There's got to be something I can do for you. And Eric says, you know, you can get me a bike. And Simone Pierre's like, a bike? What do you need a bike for? And Eric says, well, see, what I can do is I can use my bike and I could rent it out to all the other children in the area, and then I'll have money so that I could go buy food. Because right now, in order for me to eat, all I'm doing is like stealing food, and sometimes I get in trouble for that. But if I have a bike and I could rent it out, then I can have money, then I could actually pay for my food, and I won't be in trouble anymore. And so Simone is like, all right, we'll find you a bike. Crazy. And so Simone Pierre gets him a bike, and, and now Eric has his bike, and he's renting it out to little kids. And I just, I, I just picture this, like, hustler, you know, standing on the corner, like, collecting the kids' as like, uh, allowance, you know, like, renting out his bike. So Eric starts buying food. And, and Simone Pierre continued to kind of make contact and do work in, uh, in Eric's life and invite him into his program and all this crazy stuff and educate him. And at this day, today, Eric... Has like his own like motorcycle shop or like automotive shop, and he's a mechanic, and he has his own business that he works for. I was like blown away, like he was sharing this story, like this nine-year-old boy who went from like renting his bike out to to the church entering into his life, him being educated. He doesn't have parents, and yet he has his business, and, he, and he's making it. And it was this picture of perseverance that I just like I've just been thinking about it for weeks now like except for missing his name like I think of the story all of the time like that's insane like I can't imagine being a nine-year-old boy in that circumstance in that situation But but the thing that God communicates to us in his scripture the stories that we hear in the life of Christ in the early church and even in this little boy's Eric's life is that they've kicked me down since I was young but they couldn't Keep me down. Persevere in the faith. Perseverance just covers the pages of Scripture. I sat down during the week and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? Is I'm going to look at all the passages on perseverance in Scripture, and then I'll kind of have some idea of, like, perseverance where I want to go with the sermon. But it was, like, overwhelming. There's, like, way too many passages on perseverance of Scripture because it, it needs to be, it's such a crucial part of what it means to be part of God's people, And so I want to close this sermon with a couple passages. I'm just going to read, then pray, and then the worship team can come back up. Um, You've heard stories from the Old Testament, New Testament, and today. This is the great cloud of witnesses of faith that we are a part of. And just as I was encouraged by that story of a nine-year-old boy who made it, so these stories should encourage you that in the in the face of struggle and pain persevere. So I'm going to read two passages, one from 2 Corinthians and one from Hebrews. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life. Not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. So keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who's faithful to us, who relieves our pain and anguish, who enters into our pain and anguish to comfort and give strength. And God, we ask that you would grow within us a faith that perseveres, that can overcome all the challenges and obstacles that stand in our way. God, we fix our eyes on the prize, on the upward call of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we ask, God, that you will remain faithful to us in the midst of this life as you always have been to your people. God, we praise you, we honor you, and we thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us. And we ask, God, as we travel along this journey of life that somehow our lives would unveil your glory to the world, that you would be honored and praised in all things that we do. But God, give us the strength to persevere. We thank you and we praise you for allowing us to thus far. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.